Hey, Younger Family, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Tennis Bay, and you have just dialed into episode 308, Reversing the Narrative. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on all major platforms. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Wherever you're looking for the show, you can search at HungUpPod. That's H-U-N-G-U-P-P-O-D, and you'll find the show. If you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at E.TayCole. That's E-D-A-N-T-E-C-O-L-E. Send your listener feedback to hunguppod at gmail.com. Or give the show a call at 484-578-9992 and drop a message. This week, I'm hung up on the internet sensation Snarky Marky, who has crippled us all with his legendary secretary walk. Like, the accuracy of the walk and the disposition is just too on point. Lately, he's been remaking the walk with other people, and that's a super cool way to keep the video relevant, make sure don't nobody bite, and to keep us all laughing. I'm hung up. And these days, you really have to laugh to keep from crying. Hello? What? I'm here to see the principal. You're here for a meeting with the principal? Yes. Mamma mia. Student number? 00911123. First name? Tashan. Last name? Lawrence. Bitch, don't act like you've never seen me in this office. Occasion I'm in for office, the meeting? Office. I beat this bitch up for looking at me wrong. Lord, help us she all. She shouldn't have never looked at me, I'll bitch. She was kind of cross-eyed, but I don't give a fuck. She shouldn't have been looking at me like that. Why is she walking like that? Warren! They're here for their appointment. Yeah. He'll be here with you in a sec. Okay, bitch, we can do it without a... I am also hung up on first responders, nurses, doctors, folks who work in public health and public safety, customer service, teachers, parents, single parents. Everybody is doing the best that they can right now. So just make sure you're being patient with yourself and give yourself room to process this new normal. We don't all have the answers right now. And there's just so many varying opinions about what has happened, what is happening, what you should or shouldn't be doing. That shit is low-key overwhelming and high-key annoying as fuck. The older I get, I really am seeing the value in self-validation. Pretty much not seeking that validation from outside of yourself. Because that shit can be dangerous, right? But also, making that decision to put more value in self-validation, that will shake up things in your relationships and your friendships. Making that decision is really constructing a boundary, a boundary that folks are used to crossing with you. What do you think will happen when you suddenly say no more? You can put up boundaries, but you can't control how people will respond to that. But you can't control you. And while you're seeking a healthier life and creating boundaries, so are other people. So just remember that respectability goes both ways. Be a real one for one minute. I want to thank everybody for all the feedback that I got on the last seven episodes. And some of y'all were really feeling the bonus episode that I did with Charmel where we reviewed some really dope music. A few of y'all hit me up with some music to add to my playlist. So be on the lookout for more of those type of episodes. Charmel, 
aka John of All Trades, was dope, right? Full disclosure, I was a little nervous about entering this season. But sometimes you don't realize that forging your own path is okay until after you start forging that path. EJ, longtime listener, someone who would definitely be in the hung up fam VIP room if there was a such thing. <laughs> EJ writes, loving the new season and Charmel is right about your voice, although I describe it as smooth and deep as fresh molasses and hypnotic. Definitely a quiet storm voice, Tennis Bay. Mm, thank you, EJ. I'm so glad y'all are here for my voice. My ask is that you all continue to indulge and spread the word. Me, bitch. This week's guest dropped several gems, but the biggest takeaway for me was when it comes to K through 12 education for young black men, it isn't the young men who are failing, it's the system who are failing the young men. Reports are often skewed to show a different, more racist narrative, a narrative that feeds into the very system that was built to ensure that outcomes for black and brown communities are dismal compared to white, more privileged communities. My guest this week, Dr. Shazare Warren, has dedicated his life to reversing the narrative and negative stereotypes by holding the people who built the system of oppression within the education system accountable. Dr. Warren's research celebrates the lives of inner city youth and expounds on how their unique experiences better prepare them to navigate K-12 school years and the world. Enjoy. family. I'm here with associate professor at Michigan State University, affiliate faculty of women and gender studies, and author, Dr. Shazare Warren. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Welcome to the Hunger Podcast. I gave you a brief introduction. Why don't you introduce yourself? Well, I am from Chicago. Hey, what they do in Chicago? (laughs) Born and raised, really (laughs) on the north side, but spent my high school years and my family is really from the south side. So I'm more claiming the south side than the north side. Come from a very small family, was a middle school and high school math teacher, eventually got a PhD, became a professor, uh, lived in Philly for a couple years, where I met some amazing people like... Eric Cole, and um, now have been in Michigan State six years, starting my seventh year as a professor in urban education and teacher education. That is so dope. Seven years. That's commitment. (laughs) Seven, indeed. 
And so you born and raised in the south side of Chicago. When did you make your transition to Michigan? Well, that was that was after Philly, right? Yes, 2014. Got it. How long did you live in Philly? Three years. <laughs> For a while, you met some some really cool people. What do you What do you miss the most about Philadelphia? The culture and uh, antiquity of the city, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. The mm-hmm. the is its own. The culture, arts, and then of course the people. Um, I have close friends there. I, I became an alpha there. My my line brothers are there. So I miss uh, the people for sure. What I do know is that you you do a pretty good job of staying connected with folks. You you stay in touch. I really try. I really do. <laughs> my life is not always conducive to my being present physically. Uh, at things and places that I, you know, as much as I would like, but as as much as we can stay connected. And I think if anything, the pandemic and being in this moment where we're all in the house is really forced, not forced, but it's created an opportunity and a space for us to be in even more conversation than we would be ordinarily, which has been a, a gift. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you if the quarantine has made keeping in touch with people easier or harder for you but it sounds like it's it's giving you an opportunity to reach out more kind of I, I would agree same thing here yeah certainly okay how's your week been are you hung up are you hanging up on your week how's everything going this week has been really good in comparison to other weeks during the pandemic <laughs> Uh, I got a lot of work done without feeling overwhelmed, and I've been in a good headspace, uh, you know, emotionally, psychologically. Things have been sort of even keel. I got outside a number of times this week, so my week was good. Looking forward to the weekend and sort of taking it easy and relaxing. Yeah, really excited about today and our conversation, and um, it's been good. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So this week, we're going to do a Black Card Revoke version of the Icebreaker. I know it's a little early. But I would like the Hunger family to know that we got a singer on the mic right now. Dr. Shezza Ray is not only a professor, affiliate faculty, okay, author, but we also have a singer here. So, I... So maybe, you know, just to have some fun with it, you can hum a little tune. I, you know, I ain't going to ask you to belt out any notes or anything. But if you hum a little tune, this will be like a, a remote version of musical chairs. When you stop humming, I'm going to pick the card and read it off to you. Okay. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> so I just need to pick. I mean, you got a tune in mind. Or... Uh, what's on, I, I feel like. 
someone like you always got a, a song on your heart. You you got something. <laughs> <laughs> am I wrong <laughs> or am I right? <laughs> is I'm wrong or is I'm right? Uh, <laughs> I suppose. How about you hum your favorite Whitney song, whatever it is? Oh, uh, okay. Yes, we believe the children are our future. <laughs> and that's gonna be my challenge. I gotta figure out what you humming. If I'm right. if I'm the true if I'm the true Whitney fan that I say that I am, right? Alright, so when you stopped we got a majority rules card so let's turn this over okay you witness a fight what do you do next a call the police b film it with your camera c break it up or d yell world star yeah i'm definitely a call the police kind of dude <laughs> yeah i kind of knew that before you even <laughs> answered it <laughs> <I'm> like... <laughs> we thought about it i taught middle school and um my first year teaching there was a girl I don't know if your listeners will probably a, a lot of folks will know those big pencils electric pencil sharpeners you stick your pencil in it's huge it's like a big block almost like a brick mm-hmm. and uh, this girl picked it up and lassoed it like spun it around like a like a lasso uh, trying to take this boy's head off and in the process <laughs> my head off and I promised myself then I was not about to jump in the middle of fights because they did not pay me enough as a teacher to get my head knocked off by a little girl who's mad at some little boy, you know? So that's like my thing. Oh. I would defend myself if the attack- Oh my God. But I'm not going to step in the middle of other people's conflicts. Wow. That is crazy. Come A lasso, like my mouth dropped when you said that because I was just picturing this going down. Like that's crazy. Yo, I have so many, so many stories <laughs> from teaching middle school on the west side of Chicago. It's no joke. I would say, you know, I'm, I would, I'm, I agree. I'm not gonna break it up, even though I have broken up. I remember, um, I lived with someone a long time ago, and her son got into a fight like right outside in front of the house and without me even thinking because he was like getting jumped without me even thinking I just went out there and I snatched him up from the middle of that fight and I broke it up but that's not something that I would usually do I think because I had so much love for that boy and I wanted to protect him but I will say it does bother me that people film a lot of incidents when they should be calling for help and it, it just it, it really does bother me when people film stuff and then they post it and retweet it on social media it's not I don't really like that I find that to be rather dehumanizing I don't consume it I don't share it and I'm certainly not gonna do it film it so mm-hmm. yeah especially fights I'm not a fan no and us fighting each other mm-hmm do you do I have to pick another tune? No, no, no. You got to do it because then I got to guess. So I'm going to start shuffling and you can... Do you have a tune on your heart? It don't have to be Whitney. It could be anybody. This is the one that came to me originally. 
Now, I can't figure that one out. What song is that? <laughs> it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful <laughs> day. Want to be mine. Want to be mine. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So, we got a correct answer wins card. Which character from Cooley High was a regular cast member on A Different World? Was it A, Tyrone? B. I don't know who the hell that is. <laughs> C. I don't, I, I don't know her. Um, C. Pooter or D. Preach. So you got Tyrone, Pooter, or Preach. Who was from Cooley High but also was a regular cast member on A Different World? Oh, Glenn Terman's character, obviously, but I don't remember his name from Cooley High. Oh, goodness. It's not, who is it? No, I don't, what's the character? Tyrone Preach. Yep, you got it. Preach. <laughs> you good. He like, black, y'all. He black. He black, black. He... <laughs> I, I can't remember his character's name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to do one more while I'm going to have you sing a tune, and then I got some, some random ones that I already picked out for you. do 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 Damn, I know this, I know this. Yes, come on, Eric, I know this. Who is it? Marvin Sapp, never would have made it. Ooh. Never would have made it. Hey. Would have made it without all you. Yeah. I would have lost it all. <laughs> yes, sir. We got another majority rules. So we have who is your favorite Jackson? A. Janet. B. Jermaine. C. Michael. Or D. Freddie. Oh, Michael. Hey, I know that's right. <laughs> who, who will be your second favorite? Uh, Jermaine, cause he funny. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. I thought you was gonna say Janet, but I, I like that you put a little, you surprised me on that one. Okay. Yeah, cool. I'm in a Janet stand, you know. Mm. I appreciate her more. Well, I appreciate that Velvet Rope album a lot. Ooh, oh, that was probably my album. That was a good album. An uh, album and the tour was amazing. Did you go see it? No, but I was one of the people who was at home watching it on HBO. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, that was. I just, even though it's sort of from my childhood, um, mm-hmm. and um, at all. That I do that sticks out as a, a favorite Janet moment, and then that uh, scream video with her, with her brother. Oh yeah, well, they were in the spaceship. Yeah, that black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. 
All right. So I got a few more. I'm going to fire off to you. By what time did you have to be home when you were a kid? A, when it got dark? B, 8 p.m.? C, when the street lights came on? Or D, by midnight? Oh, please. Let's, let's, none of the above. How about five o'clock, six o'clock? My mother. Okay. When you're in the south side? Okay. This is even on the north side where it was relatively fine and safe. <laughs> uh, she just did not want me outside real late. Gotcha. Hours and I was back in the house. Mama but, was not playing. So how how would she if you were ever late? How would she? Because I know some parents would just you know open the door and yell out. Or did you have like a, a pager or something like how? If you were ever late, how would she get your attention? She, oh, so she would get it when you got home, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how it would be. Or she would send my daddy after me. Oh. Yeah. Where would you be if the, you were late? I wouldn't be nowhere but at the park up the street. I did not. I was not <laughs> a person who took a lot of risks as a child. <laughs> so, <laughs> so mm. excuse me. I was never hard to find. I was one of the kids that I, I knew I had to be home when the, when the street lights came on. We had a street light that was in. The, I, I lived in like a cul-de-sac neighborhood and we had a few street lights in the middle of the the circle and when that light came on I knew I had to be home but I would usually be either at the rec center the swimming pool like the tennis court that we had there in the neighborhood I rode my bike everywhere I would ride my bike all over the neighborhood <clears throat> my dad wasn't as strict but I also grew up in Waldorf so <laughs> different rules different different contexts and, and, and sometimes it's amazing to me when I think about how free I used to be as a kid and how now you know because when I was a kid I, I remember I used to ride my bike around so much that I would always run into neighborhoods that were under development and when this situation just happened uh, recently you know what I'm talking about in the news with our brother Ahmad Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Because I saw some video footage where he was looking, he went to like a house that was being built and he was just peeking around out of curiosity. And I just remember doing that all the time when I was a kid, like it was nothing, you know? Yeah. And I never thought for a second, it never would have crossed my mind that I would have lost my life from from just being, from just being curious. Yeah. Um, you know, that it just... It's really crazy. Yeah, it it's inexplicable in a lot of ways, but it further re reinforces a more telling history in terms of the ways that black bodies don't get to be free and curious about most anything. The we our bodies have always been sort of imagined as a thing to be tamed and put under control uh, and so our wanting to explore and sort of roam and, and move through space freely is has historically been prohibited in a lot of ways and those logics have sort of been passed down over time um, so we'll probably get into some of that as we talk yeah. first 
Who's the funniest comedian of the last 20 years? Chris Rock, Bernie Mac, Martin Lawrence, or Dave Chappelle? Ooh. It was, oh. I, I want to say Martin Lawrence. I feel like that mm. people struggle with that. But I just think the Martin show today is still funny. I don't laugh out loud at much that comes on television. But Martin is still really funny. I think if you talk about like mainstream comedian, but perhaps like stand-up comedy, it might be like a Bernie Mac or a, not Chris Rock. Who was up? Oh, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle's stand-up is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, a, a, for me, a, a, a tie between Dave Chappelle and Martin. Because even the Chappelle show was like ahead of its time amazing. Would still be funny today. But yeah. Yeah, you're right. I Martin Lawrence is is hilarious. He's a legend. Because like you said, that show is still in heavy syndication these days. And when it's on, I don't hesitate to watch it. And it's like, oh yeah, I remember this episode. And it's like, I, I'm looking forward to seeing this episode that I have seen a thousand times, more than likely. But it's Martin, and, and you never get tired of laughing. Never, never get tired of it. <laughs> ah, I love it, I love it. All right, I'm gonna ask you one more icebreaker question. What movie does every black person have in their collection? A, Friday, B, Boys in the Hood, C, The Color Purple, or D, Scarface? That's hard. Every black person. I will say Friday. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Take a book. Take it. <laughs> Cut it. Ain't like you got shit to do tomorrow. You don't have to go to work. Don't take it. I got a drink. Oh, crazy. Let's stimulate your mind. You ain't got shit to do. All right. Put it in your mouth. Shut up. That's the shit, ain't That's the shit. That's the shit. Wet the motherfucker all up. It's my shit. I can do whatever I want to do. Stop hitting it so hard. Oh, you fucking up the rotation. Puff, puff, give. Puff, puff, give. Fucking up the rotation. You can get killed with somebody else. That's some serious shit. You lucky you, my boy. Take your time. Gotta crawl before you walk. Craig fucked up. You fucked up. Say this was endo. Smell like outdo.
that's the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, laughing always brings us together. And I can't help but to think that there's so much historical context to that because we experience so much trauma and still do mm-hmm. that laughter is a way of healing and like you said bringing us together absolutely yep agreed well that icebreaker was fun thank you everyone we're going to take a quick break and when we get back we're going to get into our interview with Dr. Shazare Warren we'll be right back Why should I believe you now? Because I changed my ways. I don't believe you, Sams. I don't think you've changed a thing. Go on, jump. No, I don't want to jump. Yes, you do. You smoke crack, don't you? You smoke crack, don't you? Look at me, boy. Don't you smoke crack? Yes, sir. Do you know what that does to you? Huh? No, sir. It kills your brain cells, son. It kills your brain cells. Now, when you're destroying your brain cells, you're doing the same thing as killing yourself. You're just doing it slower. Now, I say, if you want to kill yourself, don't fuck around with it. Go on and do it expeditiously. Now, go on and jump. Jump. No, I don't want to kill myself, sir. You're quite sure about this, are you? Yes, sir. All right, Sam, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back on my own word just this once let you back into my school because you're still a baby and you don't know shit but you understand this boy you're not going to get a moment's rest i'm going to be on your case every minute you mess up just once and you're out of here now you understand me do you understand me yes sir i'm going back downstairs hey young up fam I appreciate y'all for tuning in to this episode with Dr. Warren. Be sure to follow this show on all platforms. Just search at Hung Up Pod. That's H-U-N-G-U-P-P-O-D. And drop a rating on Apple Podcasts. Let's get back to the show. All right, everyone, we are back. And I am here with Dr. Shazare Warren. Associate Professor at Michigan State University, Affiliate Faculty of Women and Gender Studies, and author. Author of Urban Preparation, Young Black Men Moving from Chicago's South Side to Success in Higher Education. I have your book here in front of me. What a great book. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. You wrote this book a few years ago. Before we get into some of the content of the first three chapters, what motivated you to write this? Great question. So what was important to me first as a teacher? Well, no, first as a as a black man who was once a, a black boy, grew up in public, you know, attending public schools. Uh, who became a teacher of black boys and became really interested in understanding the school environments, the types of interactions, the social conditions in a school, in a community that facilitate and optimize black male school achievement 
all sort of uh, informed or guided um, me in wanting to pursue a research project that um, sought to understand one particular school through the eyes of its graduates. And as I embarked upon that project with a colleague, it became apparent to me in the stories that we were told and the stories that I heard from these young men that this story could not be told in an article format. As a professor in education, we are most rewarded for writing journal articles who reach a limited number of people. And there's, it's a particular genre of writing that is not always accessible to the public and to people who really need access to the ideas that this book makes available. So I wanted to write this book um, to tell this story in, in full length, but also to make these ideas and these stories and these concepts available to a very broad audience like, you know, someone like yourself or anybody who's just interested in black boyhood and education, um, because otherwise it would be really difficult to, um, to sort of make these stories more widely available to the public. Mm -hmm. So those are the sort of initial things that motivated me to write the book. I've been following your work for quite some time. And one of the things that I find you to be very passionate about is reversing the narratives and negative stereotypes around inner city black male school performance. And I feel like that was either the foundation or a part of the foundation of your book. How did this journey begin for you? And, and I feel like I've already asked you this. Why, why is this work important for our community? More specifically, reversing those narratives and negative stereotypes around black male performance. I think um, reversing these stereotypes and really digging deep with respect to how we view Black people and Black bodies is incredibly important because what we believe fuels what our values become and our values fuel essentially what we do and how we do it, how we behave, how we interact with others. And for me, I just became really troubled by reading and hearing people talk about Black folks and what we can't do and how much we fail and not thinking more broadly to the ways that our society has failed Black people and how failures by society to serve and create space and uh, for opportunity and to reduce barriers and limitations to Black people's achievement can better explain why Black people underachieve than wanting to point at the than wanting to point at black communities and black families as the reasons why we don't achieve, as if to say we as black folks have never been that interested in an education. The world really turns based on the stories that are told about groups of people, and so this work is my attempt to push back and tell a different story not just about Black people, but about Black communities, about the ways that Black folks have always appreciated and been invested in education. Um, and in doing so, help us to think differently about our approach uh, and the ways that we engage the education of Black people. When you believe something is broken, you approach that thing as if it is broken. If you believe that it is whole, that it is uh, 
ha has full capacity to achieve the impossible, then you approach that thing with that particular orientation. And so I'm wanting my work, including this book, but also my, my broader research agenda and what I write to really offer perspectives and narratives and ways of thinking about black folks that really position us to be seen as whole, as unbroken, as full of potential and possibility. Hmm. One of my takeaways from that is that the focus is in the wrong area. The focus mainstream is, oh, the black people are the problem. Instead of mm -hmm. looking at all the systems that have been set up that actually failed us. We're not immune to internalizing ways of seeing the world that most benefit and support uphold uh, sort of white supremacy and white dominance. And we, we kind of have to reconcile that. We didn't create the structures or we didn't author the messages of inferiority that have been so pervasive in positioning black folks as inferior to white folks. But we do have to come to grips with, especially those of us who have been educated, we have to come to terms with how we have reproduced a racial politic that does not serve our communities and serve the collective good. So, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. I want to just make sure that we're careful not to further deficitize Black people who struggle to reconcile and understand why, for example, um, some Black folks don't want to participate in the voting process or why some, some Black people don't see themselves wanting to engage civically. There is a fundamental or profound disappointment with the state of affairs and feeling as if the government has not done a good job in serving and meeting the needs of Black folks. And so there are Black people who say, I don't want to participate in this process. I think we have to respect and appreciate these perspectives and figure out as a community, collectively, how do we get towards our um, aspire towards a world where all of us can enact some version of liberation and freedom it's gonna look very different for lots of different people, which means that even within group, there are gonna be some conflict that we need to work out. So I think that that's another layer and tier of work that, that needs to be done. So in chapter one of your book, you talk about opportunity gaps, colorblindness, cultural conflicts, myth of mediocrity, low expectations and deficit mindset, context neutral mindset, these five dimensions. Colorblindness was the one that popped out to me and stood out to me the most. When you talk about opportunity gaps in chapter one, I feel like these areas, these five dimensions that you mentioned, are the areas in which opportunity gaps tend to happen. Like these are the these are the things that can lead to an opportunity gap. And I colorblindness, like I said, is the one thing that stood out to me. Because it really does bother me when I hear people say, I don't see color. Is that what you're talking about in that when you talk about colorblindness? Yeah, I'm citing the work of H. Rich Milner, who offers those five dimensions or um, characteristics to explain why opportunity gaps persist. 
So mm. opportunity gaps are, you might think of it as those factors or characteristics of a schooling environment that reduce or inhibit access to opportunity. So if you want to make sure a young person is successful, you want them to be in an environment that removes all barriers to their being successful. Part of the argument here is with this the language of colorblindness is when an adult, either the teacher, a paraprofessional, or any other adult with whom a young person is interacting, approaches that young person from a colorblind perspective, what it says is that I don't see your color. Well, I'm a black boy in America. My blackness has always carried some level of meaning in this society, that meaning being uh, that I'm not very valuable unless I'm contributing in some ways, uh, going back to slavery, to the wealth building project of this nation or the, the capitalistic, imperialist sort of project in the U.S. But otherwise, my, my skin really invalidates my humanity in, in a lot of ways, historically. So for a teacher to approach a young person and they have that logic where I don't see your skin color, what you're saying is that I don't really see you because my skin color absolutely shapes how it is that I'm able to move and move through the world. So it, it's connected to opportunity gap because it reduces the teacher's capacity to fully embrace and honor the full humanity and weight of humanity of a young person when you deny that they have a race uh, or you say that you don't see their race. You want to treat them like you treat everybody else. But the reality is, is that there is meaning that is associated with race in this country. And because there is meaning associated with race, we cannot deny that it is a factor that plays into how a teacher teaches and how a young person learns and the conditions that facilitate both to work at, at an optimal level. So mm -hmm. opportunity gaps language helps us to move away from the concept of achievement gaps because achievement gaps suggest I don't achieve because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Opportunity gaps suggest I don't achieve because this environment or the structures around me have failed me and they have uh, reduced my capacity to achieve at a high level. Hmm. You touched on a little bit how important the student, the teacher student relationship is. And I know I've also heard you talk about this in the past as well. I feel like colorblindness is could be an inhibitor to having a productive teacher student relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. If you don't see my color, I feel like you don't see my culture in the historical context of this country. So how can I trust you to uh, to help me be become the better version of who I can be? Right. And you're not acknowledging such a significant part of who I am. I'm not acknowledging my, my race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on the oh, flip side, I was going to say, on the flip side, if I'm a white teacher, as a as a young person, I know you to I notice you to be a white teacher. I'm not colorblind when I see you, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm in the case of the the boys in the book, um, most of their teachers were black men. It mattered that their teachers were black men, you know. So I, you know, young people and families are not gonna look at you and say necessarily, oh, your race doesn't matter to you being a good teacher to my to my student. History doesn't support that. Mm. What is your opinion on the impact 
that it does growing up and you see concrete city you see wires you see boarded up homes i think growing up in wherever you grow up you develop a set of skills and knowledge about that is place-based that are that become transferable as you move through the world and you get more exposures i think one of the things that a person should take away from the book, especially that chapter on um, chapter two, where we go into some detail with the young men in the book talking about their neighborhoods and how they grew up. These are places that the outside world, people who are not from there would look at as desolate and um, uh, overrun with with violence and, and drugs and so on. And there are ways that black communities and drugs and violence have been sort of imagined and and mainstream as correlates to failure and disenfranchisement and uh, a way to predict where and how these people, what they will become in the future. And part of what the boys say is that, you know, this community made me who I am. You know, there are risks, yes, that I had to navigate uh, getting to and from school to achieve, but these risks, what I learned, the networks that I built in those spaces became really valuable to me as I moved through high school and into college. I don't abandon or disconnect mm. my from, the, from these spaces because those spaces made me who I am in terms of my wit, my, my charm, my sort of sharp intuition, my way of speaking through or negotiating um, challenges or overcoming difficult tasks in many ways is informed by all of the sort of intelligence I needed to deploy navigating the space where I grew up. In some ways, if you grow up in a place where everything is sort of neat and safe and you never actually have to develop an awareness or a sharpness perhaps to Mm the world because you think everything is like gonna be safe and handed to you and you've never had any sort of conflicts uh, in many ways, these boys are perhaps more better prepared for the difficulty and conflict that comes with adulthood and navigating college as a first-generation student that they may not have been able to navigate had they not grown up in the places where they grew up. So I think part of what the book is attempting to do and part of the larger project mm-hmm. rethinking these sort of deficit perspectives on black communities and poverty and impoverished people is, yes, a lot of people will say, I didn't know I was poor until I met people who were not poor. Mm-hmm. Realized, oh, I didn't have these things growing up, but it wasn't like they were lacking, right? And I think that's important. Like we, we position these communities in one way in part because we don't take the time to understand them through the eyes of the people who actually live there. And there's a lot mm-hmm humanity in these communities that the that these young people tend not to get when they get to school. Urban prep, I think, is an exception in that way. But certainly when they get to college, had they not had an urban prep where they had black men and black people telling them they're amazing, they can do great things, they're exceptional, they would have gotten to college and saw such a stark contrast in the ways that they grew up compared to people that they went to college with that it could have created a complex for them psychologically that was overwhelming. And perhaps that is the case for some of the young people from that particular school who did not finish college. But yeah, I sort of rap and saying that uh, these, the, the young men in my book 
definitely count growing up on the south side of Chicago as a benefit to their journeys to and through college, not as a consequence. They achieved because of where they're from, not not despite where they're from. Yes, and see, and this is why your work is so important to educate us and to show us that these things that may appear bleak or ugly to us from the outside, mm-hmm. it doesn't look that way to, 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 to the people on the inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it further speaks to, I want to read a quote in chapter two, the bipolarity of the good versus bad black man image leaves little room for development of a complex nuanced perspective of black manhood, heterosexual or otherwise. Just as these young men were proud to be Southsiders, they were also proud to be black. But the stress of working to not associate the bad black man image can take its toll on black men as they navigate the road to success. So, you know, I take from that exactly what you just said. You know, we can embrace our communities and who we are and where we came from and not be ashamed. When it comes to the last question I wanted to ask you, you know, your book talks a lot about reporting um, outcomes. You've, in this interview, you talked a lot about outcomes and and what they look like. I watched an interview you did with Teachers College Record and you mentioned a technique called anti-deficit reporting. Why is this type of technique important when it comes to reporting around, specifically around black male performance? What, What is your input on that? Essentially, what I'm trying to get at and using that language is making sure that we recognize institutions have a responsibility to the public, uh, you know, government, criminal justice, uh, workforce, healthcare, education, right? Have a responsibility to the public and the public good. And when we talk about the achievement of Black youth and how they're underachieving, and we don't ever factor in the institution, we are deficitizing mm. black black communities. And it just further reinforces a dominant narrative that exists that has existed over 400 years about the inferiority of black people and cultural deficits and what we don't have and why we don't achieve because of what we don't input. And I think the anti-deficit reporting is really helping us turn our attention away from families and communities and young people to the institutions and society that created, that were created Mm -hmm. with them not in mind. And so then the outcomes are really outcomes we should come to expect because those institutions have been created in ways that inferiorize these communities. Uh, And we got to point to that history and all of the ways that these institutions contribute to failure. So instead of saying Black youth, for example, in terms of like uh, reporting and telling a story. Uh, black youth are failing at alarming rates. We might reframe that and say institutions of public education, K-12 public education in the United States is failing at educating black youth at alarming rates. Mm-hmm. It sits the institution and it forces us to ask a different question of the institution. Not why are black kids failing, but why are pub- why is publication- public education failing black kids at this rate, right? Because if you ask yes. about why black kids are failing, it assumes that the institution is doing all that it can do to improve the academic outcomes of black youth. And that is just simply not the reality. We have mm-hmm. way too much data to suggest. Now, what my book is trying to do is to say, 
considering this history and the failure of black schools to educate, I'm sorry, the failure of public schools to educate black youth, there is a cohort of young people, black, black youth in this country who do achieve at high levels, who do come from communities that get talked about in ways that will suggest that these black youth would never achieve. And they come from these communities and they do achieve. What can we learn from their journey? Not just about what they did, but really what what structures were around them, what interactions did they have, what experiences or moments did they encounter or in, engage with that really supported their being successful to and through college, because they didn't do it all their own. Uh, the flip side of the same coin is, while they didn't do it all their own, they did have a significant role. They had what we like to talk about as agency. They had mm -hmm. decision-making power. They were not these objects being tossed to and fro and then somehow landed in college. They also did invest, but they were in environments that pulled the best out of them in some ways. Some ways it pulled the best out of them, in other ways it reinforced um, really oppressive, anti-Black ways of seeing and being in the world. Um, that's what makes this book and, and the school Urban Prep really interesting, because there are things that they did really well and then there's some other things that, that really need to be questioned and turned on their head. Um, but yeah, I think anti-deficit reporting is really turning our attention back to institutions and all of the different characteristic and factors that shape how a young person can achieve. This is where opportunity gaps sort of show up, and it's about inputs and, and, and what structures they have to support them. This is great. I, I Love it. Anti-deficit reporting. My takeaway from that is that it is holding the institutions and the systems and the people accountable that it needs to that it needs to hold accountable. Indeed. Yep. This is great. Thank you, Dr. Cesare Warren, everyone. Urban preparation, young black men moving from Chicago's south side to success in higher education. That is the title of his book. Where can they find you and where can they purchase your book you i'm uh encouraging people more and more if there are ways to purchase directly from the press or purchase from uh independent and local booksellers go into the bookstores well we're probably not going into any bookstores anytime in the very near future but hopefully soon but um, contacting local bookstores independent booksellers to ask them for the book or if you go to my website CesareWarren.com, C-H-E-Z as in zebra, A-R-E, Warren.com. As soon as you click on the page, you'll see the title of the book. You click the book, um, I'm sorry, the cover of the book, click the book cover. It takes you directly to Harvard Air Press, and you can purchase the book directly from uh, Harvard Air Press. I am saying that as a person who is like concerned about Amazon as a uh, conglomerate. <laughs> Yeah, we need to support. We need to support local locally. Um, so yes, I just gave you my website. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Cesare Warren on Twitter. D R C H E is an egg, Z is in zebra, A R E Warren on Twitter. Support me, bitch! I am your sister, bitch. Yes, yes. on the internet. <laughs> I'm hung up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate you for having me on. And listeners, you know, I will drop Dr. Warren's info in the track bio. So you'll see that when the episode posts. Thank you, Dr. Warren, for coming through. Thank you, sir.
Have a good one. conversation right send your listener feedback to hungupod at gmail.com or drop a message on the social medias by searching at hungupod that's h-u-n-g-u-p-p-o-d be sure to check out dr warren's book urban preparation and follow him on social media let him know you heard him on the hunger podcast i'm eric the host of this podcast. You can find me at E Dante Cole on Instagram and Twitter. That's E D A N T E C O L E. I really enjoy doing this show. So whenever I get a chance to thank y'all for listening, I do just that. So thank you for listening. <laughs> Peace and blessings, y'all. I'm out. Intelligent, adaptable, agile, communicative, informative, creative, and everybody hates it. Imagination, colorful, and I just entertain it. A poet and a dreamer, I'ma seize the world and take it. Of course, there is the bad, I'm really superficial. I ain't called you in three months till I maintain that I miss you. A Gemini with issues, social isolated. I pray that I'ma make it, or at least that I can fake it. And like a Gemini, I'm really prone to changes. I'm really indecisive, and I really fucking hate it. Picking clothes or picking food, it always make me anxious. But thank God I'm androgynous, cause boys, cause what I stay in.